So, well, um, as you saw from the beginning, uh, we looked last week um, at, uh, well, last week was the beginning of Advent, and we looked last week at the theme of hope, um, that in Christ we have this unshakable, imperishable, unbreakable hope, this eternal hope, and we as Christians are a hope-filled people in the midst of a world of hopelessness. Well, today we're looking at the next theme, which is peace. Advent reminds us um, of the peace that we have with God and with one another in Christ, and the future peace we also long for at the return of Jesus Christ. See, the message of Advent is in part a message of peace. We saw that, for example, in the, the prophecy we read um, last week, Isaiah 9, verse 7, referring to Jesus. Um, it describes him as what? Do you remember? He is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of peace. And when the, when the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke 2, they were praising God, and what was it that they were saying? They were declaring glory to God in the highest, <clears throat> and on earth, peace among those with who he is Please. Now, when you think of peace, um, this is for open conversation. When you think of peace, uh, what comes to your mind? Maybe you have a place, an experience, something that just causes you to think of peace. Or when you hear the word peace, what is it that first comes to your mind? Any thoughts? Security. Security, okay, yeah. Sitting by a river, quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Canoeing in Canoeing in Muskoka, yeah. Yeah, anybody else? As I wrote down here, for me, it's it's going to the cottage early morning when the sun's rising, sitting on the deck, reading a book with a coffee in my hand, and the water is completely still, and all you can hear is the singing of birds. That's like my, my ideal. I could do that every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, when the Bible speaks of peace, um, it primarily speaks of peace in, in two ways, but they're, they're interconnected, they're, they're bound to each other. And, and all really what I want to do this evening, very briefly, is look at these two ways the Bible speaks of peace. The first is this, when the Bible speaks of peace, it speaks of it primarily through the lens of reconciliation. Um, there was, or there is, hostility, conflict between two parties. And when reconciliation happens, peace happens, right? The hostility, the conflict is no more. It's been removed from the equation. Now, we saw last week from Genesis 3 that our world is immersed in conflict, right? Humanity now has conflict with creation. We have conflict with self, inner conflict. We have conflict with one another. And ultimately, and the most fundamental issue is that we have conflict with God. In fact, all other conflicts flow from our conflict with our Creator. And the Christmas story is the act of God by which He addresses the conflict that exists and brings about the peace, or brings about peace, to this broken and conflicted world. This is why um, Paul in Ephesians 6.15 he describes the gospel as the gospel of peace. of peace. Yeah, the gospel of peace. The good news of Jesus Christ is the good news of peace. Um, 
the world primarily thinks of reconciliation or peace. This isn't good language, but it, it's clear. It helps us understand. But the world primarily thinks of reconciliation or peace from a horizontal lens, right? So you have nation versus nation. There's conflict and then peace or when reconciliation happens is they, they're no longer in conflict with one another. They sign a peace treaty, so to speak. You have ethnicity versus ethnicity. Um, we see this throughout history, specific ethnic groups hating other specific ethnic groups. Um, we have neighbor versus neighbor. Some of us probably have nice neighbors and others, others of us have awful neighbors. But, but the Bible um, contends that there's a vertical conflict that's actually more fundamental to the horizontal conflict between humanity. It's more essential to our humanity because when it's, when it's addressed, it allows us to experience what I would call horizontal peace as well. And we know this, of course, that the conflict is that humanity is in conflict with God and God is in conflict with humanity. And, and I would argue, biblically speaking, you cannot have true peace until you have peace with God. And this is why, as we know, God sent his son to be born and to die, to establish peace between God and humanity. So turn, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and um, the context, or just before Romans 5, in in Romans 4, Paul is basically making his case for why uh, no one is justified by the works of the law, but is justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus. And he uses specifically Abraham as his example, that Abraham in Genesis was um, seen as or accounted as righteous before God, not because of his works, but because he believed the promise that God had made to him. And so he holds up Abraham as this example of faith, and he's saying, we as the people of God, we can never be made right, we can never be righteous enough, righteous enough. we can never stand before a holy God and be declared justified by our own works. It is only by grace through faith. And so he makes this case, and then in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, therefore, so in light of what he has just argued, since we have been justified by faith, what does he say? We have peace with God. And then he tells us how this came about through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have been justified by faith. We have been given the imputed righteousness of Christ. We have been declared innocent before God. And because of this, we have peace through God. And this has come about through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then jump down to, to verse 6. He begins to articulate what this through Jesus Christ actually is all about. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Isn't that interesting? So at verse 1, he says we've been justified by faith. Now he says we've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we, are, we were enemies, see, there's hostility. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, there's a lot here that I could unpack. We just don't have time. But, but here's the point I want us to see. Paul articulates for us that, one, sinful humanity is in conflict with God. We are under the wrath of God. We are hostile toward God. Sinful humanity is under the righteous judgment of God. There is hostility between God and man. We are in hateful rebellion against God, and God stands as righteous judge over humanity. But Romans 5 also tells us that God, though he is righteous judge, though he is the righteous judge, he also shows his love for us while we were sinners. How? Well, the answer is Christ died for us die for us. The death of Christ addresses the righteous judgment of God by bearing our sin for us. And the death of Christ addresses our hostility and rebellion towards God because in his death we discover how incredible God's love is for us. And that love melts the sinner's heart and enables the sinner to respond no longer with hostility, but with peace and with love. And so we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The hostility has been removed. We're no longer under the wrath of God. Instead of hostility, there is peace. But this is important. It's only for those who believe. As verse 1 says, Since therefore we are justified by faith. It is only for the one who has actually embraced Jesus Christ, has believed upon him, has put their trust on him for their salvation alone. That person alone is the one who has peace with God. Jesus has accomplished our reconciliation, our peace with God. And this is what Christmas is about. And without this, we know that you can never you can never know the eternal peace that God gives to those who love him. But here's also the beautiful thing about the gospel of peace. When we are reconciled to God, we are also reconciled to our fellow man in Christ. So jump over to Ephesians 2, 14 to 17. I actually think Josh preached this a little while ago, right? A long while ago. So if you want to actually get a full unpacking of this, um, go to our website and you can listen to Josh um, unpack these verses for us. But Ephesians 2, um, I'll start in verse 11. But basically Paul is making this, he's, he's arguing how God has brought the Gentiles into uh, this incredible really the fruit of the gospel, that, that he has brought the Gentiles into union with those of the Jews. And he, he's shown how through Christ, through the gospel, he has, he has basically destroyed the hostility between these two groups. So let me, let me start in verse 11. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. The Gentiles had no covenant relationship with God, right? In the Old Testament. And then it says this, having no hope and without God in the world. What a horrifying picture. But verse 13, but now, see this, this is key. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is you Gentiles who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then verse 14, for he, that is Christ himself, is our peace who has made us both one. Here he's, of course, referring to both Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken this wall of hostility down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, hear this, in himself, one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. There's a lot here, but here's the key things we need to see. One, Paul argues that Christ is our peace, right? And the reason is this, is because he has made Jew and Gentile one. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between these two groups, and he has created in himself one new man, therefore making peace between those two groups. And Paul himself is the best example of this, right? Paul, as a Pharisee, he hated the Gentiles. He would have viewed them as unclean dogs. And yet, because of Christ... He can write to the Gentile believers in Philippi and tell them in chapter 1, verse 8, that he loves them with the affection of Christ. Only the gospel of peace can create that reality. And this is why as followers of Jesus, we're called to be peacemakers. To strive for peace amongst ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as Paul urges in 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, be at peace amongst yourselves, but we're also called to be peacemakers toward the world. Matthew 5, 9, right? Blessed are what? The peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I think during this season, during this time, during what's going on in our society, we as Christians need to think more about what it means to be peacemakers than people who create conflict. So the Bible describes, one, peace as reconciliation. There's this hostility that's removed, and peace is made. But there's also another way the Bible speaks of peace, and that is the idea of shalom, the idea of wholeness, right? Number six, the blessing that I give, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, shalom. These two ideas, reconciliation and shalom, they are... They're deeply interconnected, right? And the reason is because you can actually, you can only experience wholeness, shalom, if reconciliation has come about. 
think about it this way. Let, let, let's take, for example, a husband and a wife who have an awful marriage. Um, there's rage, there's anger, there's conflict, there's hostility, there's pain, there's bitterness, there's unforgiveness. What happens when this couple truly reconciles? Well, hostility is removed and it's replaced with peace. And when peace blossoms, it allows for shalom to enter into the marriage and that home. Wholeness is restored because when the flower of peace blossoms, it allows for all other kinds of flowers to blossom, like joy and kindness and love and laughter and compassion and forgiveness. This is why the peace of reconciliation and the peace of shalom are intertwined. When you have reconciliation, you now have the environment for shalom to take place, really for peace to run wild in a sense. And so reconciliation is necessary in order for shalom to be established. And Jesus has established reconciliation between God and man, peace between God and man, but we also know he is going to establish establish shalom at his second coming. And Isaiah 9-7 alludes to this, right? Where it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Brokenness, fallenness, corruption, conflict will be no more. Shalom will reign. Genesis 1 and 2 captures a world of shalom. Revelation 21 and 2 captures a world of shalom, a world of wholeness. But we are still waiting for that day. But if we're thoughtful, we can experience foretastes of it now. There are certain things we experience now that I think actually give us a foretaste of that shalom. For example, like the cottage, right? When you go to a cottage or you go to that specific place, you're sitting by a river, we'll often say things like, it's so peaceful. There seems to be a a harmony, a, a wholeness that is taking place. Everything seems to be fitting together in that moment. So we we are actually experiencing some foretaste of that incredible shalom to come. And and I would argue that that there is both an external peace and an internal peace. For example, when you're sitting by the riverside, um, there's this external peace happening outside of you. But there's also this internal peace happening within you as you are participating in the external peace. Christ, for example, he is establishing shalom in the world at the end of days. That is an external peace. It's something outside of you and I. But God also gives us an internal peace that that is ours even when we go through turbulent waters. A peace within the soul a wholeness, a calmness, a harmony that resides within, even through the storms of life. The peace, in a sense, that enabled Jesus to sleep in the midst of the storm. And I would, of course, argue that God is the one who gives this internal peace through the Holy Spirit as we focus our hearts and our minds on Christ himself. I mentioned this last week, just like we won't have peace, or just like we won't have hope, 
by being consumed with what's around us, so we won't have peace with being consumed with what's happening around us. Uh, in Matthew 14, when, when Peter uh, gets out of the boat, right, and he begins walking on the water toward Jesus, what led to his fear and him beginning to sink? Does anyone remember? Yeah, we're told when he saw the strong wind, he was afraid and began to sink. His eyes were looking at the strong winds rather than looking at Christ himself. And so what I want to do this evening is simply encourage you during this season of Advent to focus your eyes, your mind, and your heart on the Prince of Peace so that you may rest in his peace, even when the winds are strong.